Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to today's HR Forum. Uh, today, uh, myself and uh, Catherine Dukes are going to tell you um, all things sickness and absence related. Uh, we're going to start with a uh, presentation um, between the two of us. We're then going to um, introduce a case study shortly before the coffee break, so you've got something to think about when you're topping up, topping up your caffeine levels and having some croissants. Um, and then we'll return for a discussion about the case study after the coffee break. Um, probably expect you to start with some statistics, as we often do with these sorts of seminars, and I don't want to disappoint anyone, so here they are. Um, this is what you might call the bad news about sickness absence, why it's such a major problem. Um, so a 2010 survey found that one in five UK workers feigned an illness last time they took a day off work, a sick leave. Um, topical. Uh, Lots of people in the UK choose to skip work in order to watch sporting events. Um, and in a recent survey, the UK was found to be the third worst performing nation when, when it comes to sport-related absenteeism. And apparently the sport most people take time off to watch is, um, is football. The worst performing nation in the survey, I was quite surprised to find out, uh, was China, where they like to take time off to watch basketball, followed by India, um, where they like to watch the cricket. Um, and then uh, more sort of dramatic figure uh, apparently sickness costs UK businesses six and a half billion pounds a year. That's the bad news. If you like the good news is there are ways of dealing with the problem um, by proactive management of, of absences by your employees dealing with this as soon as employees are absent. Um, understanding your rights and obligations as an employer which is what we're really going to look at um, today and certain other practical steps which um, employers are taking. Um, return to work interviews is, is quite common for organisations that have absence problems. Um, some companies have an incentive scheme for 100% uh, attendance in a year, that's something that Boots does apparently. Um, I have to say I would be slightly careful about that kind of scheme if you're in an organisation that has you know, a hard working, long hours kind of culture um, because you wouldn't want to be encouraging people to come into work when actually they're really not fit to do so because that in itself could lead to problems around sort of stress and overwork. Um, flexible hours, unpaid leave is something else that, that's been suggested, um, particularly to deal with things like the um, the absences to, to watch a sporting event, that kind of thing. Um, and if all else fails, you could think about a company choir. Um, I read um, something on the internet the other day that apparently T-Mobile has introduced a company choir at its Merthyr Tidville uh, call centre, which has apparently uh, reduced absences by 50%. Um, and they describe this as a motivational company choir. Not quite sure what that involves, seeing the company song or something. Um, so what are Catherine and I going to be looking at? Uh, well, Catherine is going to look at um, an employer's main duties when you're dealing with sickness and absence. What do you have to do in terms of sick pay, the relationship between sickness, absence and annual leave, um, maternity-related sicknesses, PHI benefits, uh, duties to make reasonable adjustments, and... Uh, stress and I'll look at it from the other perspective actually what are your employers rights what can you do when you're faced with this kind of situation uh, in terms of requesting medical reports if you want to stop enhanced sick pay and dealing with short-term absences long-term absences unauthorized absence and the proverb the perennial problem of an employer going off sick when there's a disciplinary situation um, going on or a redundancy situation so I hand over now to Catherine to talk about it from the employer's duties perspective. Morning everyone. So the first duty I'm going to look at is the duty to pay sick pay. 
And I don't want to teach anyone to suck eggs here. I'm sure you all know about sick pay, so I'll just touch on this really briefly. But as you'll know, there's no statutory right to full pay when you're off sick. Um, there may be a right under the employee's contract of employment, but otherwise, failing that, there's just a duty to pay statutory sick pay, which is currently £85, 85 a week, if the employee is absent for more than four days. So statutory sick pay isn't payable for the first three days of absence. It's only payable thereafter. And then it's payable for up to 28 weeks in any period of incapacity for work. And the period of incapacity for work is linked to the previous period if there are less than eight weeks in between them. Um, thereafter, so after the employee's exhausted the 28 weeks of statutory sick pay, an employee can claim um, unemployment or um, incapacity benefits from the Department for Work and Pensions. Um, and the other key thing to note about statutory sick pay is there's no age limits on that. So if an employee is over 65 or under 18, they're still entitled to statutory sick pay. As an employer, you are entitled to ask for evidence, reasonable evidence of incapacity after the employee's been absent for more than seven days. So usually you would have a self-certificate before that, and then the employee would be required to provide a statement of fitness for work. Um, it used to be called a sick note. It's now called a fit note. Um, from their GP, and it can be a condition of payment of statutory sick pay that they produce that. Moving on to the slightly more complicated topic of sickness, absence and annual leave, and I've already had one person ask me a question about this, so I think this might be quite topical. And in particular, looking at workers who are on um, long-term sickness, absence and what happens to their holiday entitlements. The difficulty we've got at the moment with this is that the UK working time regulations are currently incompatible with European case law on this. So it makes it a pretty pretty tricky area to advise on and we're kind of kind of here giving a best guess of how, how to take this forward at the moment given that the government is reviewing the working time regulations and is probably going to change the working time regs anyway. Um, so at the moment, the European Court of Justice says that provided that the workers had an opportunity to exercise annual leave, UK, the UK and other um, European member states can prevent an employee from carrying over their annual leave. The working time regulations just say you can't carry over the four weeks basic annual leave entitlement in any circumstances. So. There's a bit of incompatibility there because obviously the European Court of Justice is saying if the employee has been on sick leave and hasn't had the chance to use the annual leave, then um, national law can't prevent you from carrying that over. So what we're advising at the moment is that the way to sort of get through, cut through that and make sure that you're complying is to allow workers on long-term sick leave to be permitted to take annual leave before the expiry of the current year. Um, because obviously they can't carry it over under the working time regulations, but the European Court of Justice is saying that basically employees should be allowed the opportunity to take the leave. Um, you, obviously under the working time regs, that, that prevention of carrying over leave only applies to the four weeks basic annual leave. But as you'll know, employees are entitled to 5.6 weeks. So you could allow um, a carryover of statutory leave in excess of those four weeks. Um, <coughs> And we're also advising that it's best to treat contractual leave in excess of statutory leave in the same way. 
Um, otherwise, there's a risk of sort of breach of trust and confidence type of claims and possibly also disability discrimination type of claims. And the disability discrimination claim will probably arise in that the employee will try and say, the only reason I can't take my sick leave is because I'm off sick with a disability. Um, there's also a question as to whether if an employee is on long-term sick, whether they actually should request annual leave in order to be able to take it. Um, I think at the moment <laughs> that's unresolved, but I think it's probably best to be pointing out to workers on long-term leave that they are entitled to their, their sick leave rather than waiting for them to request it. Um, moving on to look at workers who are sick during a period of annual leave. And this is a fairly controversial one. Um, the ECJ case law says that if someone falls sick during annual leave, then they have the right to request to take the annual leave at a later date. Even if that means that they then carry it over into the next annual, le annual leave year because they haven't had chance to take it in the current leave year. Now that's subject to the employer's normal notification processes, so obviously providing a self-certificate if there's less than seven days absence, but you might want to think about um, reviewing your annual leave policy or processes to require more stringent evidence in the event that someone's off sick whilst they're on annual leave, so requiring them to provide a medical certificate to prove their absence. Um, there's nothing to prevent you from doing that at the moment. Another duty to think about as an employer is um, pregnancy-related illness and pregnancy-related sickness absence. So if an employee is pregnant but they haven't yet started maternity leave and then they have a pregnancy-related illness and go off sick, they're protected from unfavourable treatment um, because of that il illness and you know, there's potential for them to claim pregnancy and maternity discrimination. And also if you try and dismiss an employee who's pregnant and goes off sick, then that would be an automatic unfair dismissal. That kind of goes without saying, really. All the other thing to bear in mind with um, maternity and pregnancy-related sickness absence is that if someone's off sick for a pregnancy-related reason um, four weeks before their expected week of childbirth, then that triggers the maternity leave automatically. Um, so it's just worth bearing that, bearing that in mind. The other thing about, um, it's not really sickness absence, but sort of maternity related issues is that employees are entitled to reasonable time off for antenatal care um, on full pay. And that's not just restricted to medical examinations, it also includes um, things that have been recommended by a GP or midwife like parent craft classes, um, but you are entitled to ask for evidence of an appointment. At the moment, there's no legal right for fathers to ask for time off to attend antenatal appointments, although the government guidance does say that you know, employers should be encouraging um, fathers to go along and <laughs> encourages employers to allow that. Okay, moving on now to permanent health insurance. And permanent health insurance is often um, confused with private medical insurance. Obviously, the difference being private medical insurance is paying for the individual to go and see a specialist, have treatment, whereas permanent health insurance is um, in the event that someone's so ill that they can't work for an extended period of time, it'll provide continuation of a percentage of their salary, usually around 75%, until either they're well enough to return to work or they are old enough to retire. Um, and there's usually a sort of waiting period of between six and nine months before that kicks in. 
Um, it's also usually, con well, almost always conditional on the individual remaining in, em in, in employment or remaining employed, albeit that they're not attending work. And this can create some difficulties around um, managing that uh, continued employment. Remain, you know, they remain on your books. Um, there's an implied term that's implied into contracts of employment that says that you can't dismiss an employee so as to deprive them of permanent health insurance except in cases of gross misconduct or redundancy. Um, so that would be a breach of contract. Um, and the issue there is that if you, if you did dismiss and it was a breach of contract, the damages that the employee would be entitled to claim for breach of contract would be all the payments that they would have received under the PHI scheme, which obviously could potentially be until they retired. So it could be a very significant amount of money. Um, yeah, loss of earnings until the date of their retirement, potentially. So um, best to avoid that, except in cases of gross misconduct and redundancy. Um, it's also important when you're drafting an employment contract to deal with permanent health insurance that you don't draft the contract so that there's a freestanding right to payments. It should always be tied to the scheme rules and acceptance onto the scheme by the PHI provider. Um, and you should make sure that there's no obligation on the employer to provide, to continue to provide the PHI payments, even if the PHI scheme provider doesn't accept the individual onto the scheme. Um, and just going back to the to the holiday issue, obviously if someone's on, on the PHI scheme, they still continue to accrue annual leave and are therefore still entitled to be paid for the 5.6 weeks statutory annual leave, which may not be covered by the PHI scheme provider. So you may be left paying the difference between the 75% salary that's covered under the PHI scheme and full pay for the 5.6 weeks annual leave, unless you do some clever drafting with the wording of your contracts to avoid that. Moving on now to talk about the duty to make reasonable adjustments. Um, so Chris is going to look at managing sickness absence and, and how, how you manage sickness absence and sort of procedures to follow to do that. But where you're looking at um, assisting an employee to return to work and that employee is classed as disabled, then you would have a duty to consider whether it's appropriate to make reasonable adjustments to their role, to um, physical features of the office and that sort of thing. So again, just, just running over the basics, and obviously this session isn't intended to cover discrimination in, in you know, more general terms, but when you're looking at whether you need to make reasonable adjustments, you should first consider whether the employee is disabled. And as you'll know, whether the test is whether someone has a physical or mental impairment, which has a substantial and long-term adverse effect on their ability to carry out day-to-day -day activities. More often than not, it'll be necessary to get medical advice about whether someone has a disability or not. Um, so if you establish that somebody is disabled, then you need to look at the duty to make reasonable adjustments. And where you have a provision criteria or practice or some sort of policy or a physical feature of the work environment that puts the employee at a substantial, substantial disadvantage compared with those who are not disabled, then you should consider making adjustments. And examples would be the requirement to work in accordance with the employee's full contractual hours. Obviously, if you're disabled, maybe that getting to work for nine o'clock every day is very difficult, travelling in rush hour, or the employee has some illness, which means that they aren't physically capable of doing a full 
full days work five days a week so then it's a question of is it reasonable to make an adjustment to their working hours or some other feature of their work the workplace to try and help them to come back to work so when we're looking at reasonable adjustments and when the courts are looking at reasonable adjustments the, the employment tribunal will take into account the factors that are set out here to decide whether it was reasonable to make an adjustment or not so these are the sorts of things that you should be thinking about when you're thinking about whether whether you need to make an adjustment um, first of which or the first two sort of whether whether the adjustment would ameliorate the, the disadvantage so w- would it work would the adjustment work to help the individual and was it practical to do that um, you're likely to need medical advice and input on whether an adjustment is going to help the individual so again Chris is going to touch on um, getting medical evidence getting medical reports but it's worth worth bearing that in mind in one case that the tribunal dealt with um, an agoraphobic employee was um, asked to work from home as an adjustment to their role but the employer refused because the employee's job involved face-to-face interviews with the public and also handling confidential files that others in the office also needed access to. And they said that that couldn't be done effectively from home. And the tribunal held that that was perfectly acceptable. Um, It wasn't a reasonable adjustment to allow the employee to work from home in those circumstances. So it's quite a reassuring um, judgment. I guess the issue, it's, it's a fairly old case, and I wonder whether now, with the advanced technology that we have and ability to scan files and keep them confidential and send them electronically, whether that case would still hold, I guess, if they still have a big part of their role that involves face-to-face interviews with the public, though, working from home isn't very practical. Um, The other thing that the tribunal will think about, and and it's something that you can take into account when you're deciding whether an adjustment is reasonable, is the cost. Um, Now, it's not you can't say oh it's not cost effective so we're not going to make this adjustment but you can say that um, you know just such an extortionate amount of money Um, and when looking at this the tribunal set down some guidelines um, in quite a useful case it was a case involving the foreign commonwealth office so the foreign commonwealth office um, had a profoundly deaf employee who had been posted out to Kazakhstan to work in the in the embassy across there, and the pro- profoundly deaf employee needed an, an English lip speaker, and the cost of that, um, the FCO decided, was two hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year, um, and so they refused to provide that, and the employee brought a claim. When looking at whether that was reasonable or not. The tribunal looked at the total disability budget that the FCO provided for all of its staff, which was £500,000 a year. It also looked at the highest cost of providing adjustments to other employees, um, and the highest cost for any other employee was about £50,000 a year. It also looked at, in, looked at the, the cost of the English lip speaker in the context of the total staffing costs for the Kazakhstan embassy, which was about £300,000 a year. And then also looked at things like allowances paid to families, um, staff with families and sort of educating their families, their children in boarding schools, which again was only about £25,000 a year. And in light of all of that, 
the tribunal found that it was reasonable not to provide this English lip speaker given, you know, the, the huge cost compared, you know, it was over 50% of the FCO's entire disability budget. Um, and they said that cost is one of the central considerations in assessing reasonableness. But you've got to weigh that against other factors, including the degree of benefit to the employee, what other employers would be prepared to, prepared to spend in similar circumstances. So obviously cost does come into this and it's quite useful to know, particularly I guess if you're a smaller employee, I mean the FCO obviously being a fairly big organisation and part of the government probably has a, a slightly higher level of expectation from the courts than a smaller employer would. Um, the tribunal will also look at whether there is any external financial assistance available to you like grants from disability organisations to help with adjustments and also as I say the sort of nature and size of the company. Um, when you're looking at whether to make reasonable adjustments to help an employee back to work it's always good practice to ask the employee for their views and suggestions um, or have a meeting with them to talk about it. What, what you'd normally do is, is get a medical report and then sit down with the employee and talk through the suggestions that the medical practitioner has made. And I've set out on the slide there some examples of possible um, uh, adjustments that can be made, although obviously it depends on the, employee, the exact nature of the employee's disability. I'm now going to move on to talk about health and safety, and in particular stress, and, and the health and safety sort of implications of stress. Um, so I've, Chris has got out his statistics already. I've got another one here. Stress is the most common cause of long-term sickness, both for manual and non-manual workers in the UK. And in 2010 to 2011, um, UK businesses lost 10.8 million working days to stress. Um, the Health and Safety Executive defines stress on the quote, quote at the top of the slide there, so stress is an adverse reaction to excessive pressures or other demands. Um, and it's important to, to stress that, <laughs> to stress, but to focus on the fact that, that stress is a reaction. So it's not necessarily, it wouldn't normally amount to an illness itself, but it may trigger other illnesses like depression and that sort of thing. Um, and stress is often confused by employees with pressure. Um, but we're, what we're really looking at here is excessive pressures. Um, so the first duty or the first set of considerations to think about with individuals who are suffering from stress are your health and safety duties. And you obviously have a duty to ensure the health and self safety and welfare at work of all staff. And also a duty to manage activities, manage your business activities to reduce the incidence of stress at work. And the Health and Safety Executive recommends that um, employers should undertake risk assessments, particularly where they have an employee who is suffering from stress and it's been drawn to your attention. So the risk assessment should identify the hazards. And in a, in a stress, contact, stress context, that would be the demands of the role, um, feeling of lack of control, um, issues to do with relationships within the organisation, change. Um, I was just speaking before we started to someone who was saying that a lot of change in an organisation like redundancies can obviously be a big factor in terms of stress and also support within the role. Um, and signs of stress which employers can, can look for to pick up on are things like 
obviously changes in work performance, withdrawal of the individual as a character, also some, something that's described as a general catch-all of regression, which can be crying, um, aggressiveness, that sort of thing, uh, and general aggressive behaviour. So once you've identified the hazards and, and looked for those signs of stress, you also, as part of the risk assessment, got to think about who may be harmed and how, evaluate the risks and take action with an action plan and monitor and review that. <coughs> so those are the recommendations that the health and safety executive makes when looking at your duty to ensure the health, safe, safety and welfare of staff at work. The things to bear in mind about health and safety duties is that there's no direct right for an employee to bring a claim for breach of your health and safety duties. But the health and safety executive may, in obviously very extreme scenarios, bring fines or financial penalties on you. Moving on then to look beyond sort of health and safety to more general um, duties to do with stress. As well as the health and safety law aspect, there's also a sort of common law duty of care that you have to that you owe to your employees. Um, and if you breach that duty and the employee suffers harm, then they could bring a negligence claim against you for breach of that duty. So the, the key things that the employee would have to show would be, first of all, did the workplace stress actually cause the personal injury, the breakdown, um, the psychiatric damage or harm alleged? Um, and that can be obviously pretty difficult. Um, again, it would probably involve medical evidence. Um, and then secondly, and this is kind of uh, perhaps more important, was was the injury or harm reasonably foreseeable in that particular individual? Um, and the case law has said uh, quite helpfully that no occupation is intrins intrinsically more dangerous than another to an employee's mental health. So, you know, just because you work in an investment bank doesn't mean that you're more likely to suffer stress than somebody who works at the post office, for example. Um, the, whether the harm was foreseeable will depend on the individual and the demands placed on them. And the cases recommend that you look at sickness absence levels, was more than one employee in the team experiencing unacceptable stress levels, um, suggest you to check for warning signs, document complaints. Um, but unless an employer is already aware of a particular vulnerability, they're entitled to assume that an employee can cope with normal pressures of a job. Um, another interesting thing that's kind of cropped up through the case law is that actually if you provide confidential help and support telephone lines, that can be quite helpful in discharging your duty of care to employees. Just looking specifically at this point about reasonable foresee whether something was reasonably foreseeable, there's a quite helpful case, um, which is the case of Walker and Northumberland, where Northumberland County Council where a social worker had a nervous breakdown at work because of an excessive workload. On their return to work they were promised additional assistance but that wasn't provided and the employee then had another breakdown and they were dismissed on grounds of ill health. The employee then brought a claim under this common law duty of care, negligence claim. Um, the council was found not to be liable for the first breakdown because it wasn't reasonably foreseeable. For, for the point I've said that, you know, you can naturally you can assume that an employee can cope with normal pressures of the job unless you're already aware that the employee is particularly vulnerable. But once they returned to work and they weren't provided with 
support and assistance, they were on notice of the risk of a repetition of the um, breakdown. And so they were held liable for that second breakdown that the employee had, and the court awarded Mr Walker £175,000 in damages um, for breach of that duty. The second uh, sort of duty that you should be aware of in terms of stress is a breach of implied terms in the employee's contract of employment. First of which is um, the implied term to take reasonable steps to ensure the safety of employees at work. And this is actually much the same as the common law duty of care. Um, so du take, it's a duty to take reasonable care not to cause psychiatric harm by reason of the nature or volume of the work imposed. Uh, as I said, it's analogous to the breach of common law duty of care. The second breach of the implied term, which should probably be more familiar to you, is the implied term of trust and confidence. Um, so if the employer's behaviour is so unreasonable that it's a fundamental breach of contract, the employee can resign and claim constructive unfair dismissal. And I'm sure you'll have seen that in other, contact, other contexts apart from stress. Um, but the, the issue with the stress is that, that it has to cause some sort of in injury, physical injury or mental injury, which is traceable back to the unreasonable behaviour. And that's, that must be pretty hard to show, I would imagine. I've not, not dealt with a... Um, and confidence case myself but involving stress but I think it'd be quite hard to show so um, now I'm going to pass back to Chris and he's going to deal with your rights as an employer so I'm going to start by looking at two specific things which you might want to do when you're dealing with an absent employee and then look uh, generally at um, how you manage absences so the two first of the two specific things requesting a medical report Something you might want to do most obviously when you're dealing with a long-term absence, but also potentially when you're dealing with recurrent absences, um, if there's a suggestion that there is an underlying medical problem ca causing it, or maybe if you think an employee is malingering when they've gone off sick during a disciplinary process and you want to um, find out whether that's really true or not. Um, unsurprisingly, you do need an employee's consent to get a medical report. <coughs> Um, and actually there are some quite specific rules around getting uh, medical reports set out in the Access to Medical Reports Act. So when you ask an employee um, for their consent, you have to tell the employee what their rights are. And those rights are set out on the slide that they can refuse the consent um, or they can ask to see the report first, um, in which case they have um, 21 days to look at the report and for, um, to ask for it to be amended. The doctor providing it doesn't have to amend it, um, but they have to provide reasons why they're not going to if they don't agree um, amend it. Or the employee can just agree to the report being sent directly to the employer. Um, and if e even if the employee does that, they can still ask for a copy of the report anytime within six months. What happens if you don't follow that that detailed process in the in the act? Well, there's no damages claim, um, in fact, that an employee can bring. But it's not going to look particularly good when you're defending an unfair dismissal claim um, if you haven't gone, gone through those processes or if you're defending a disability discrimination claim. What do you do if an employee refuses to consent? Um, well, in a sense, it's not um, altogether um, bad news if an employee does refuse to consent because you've tried to do your bit. Um, you should encourage the employee to consent and say to them, look, we need this information um, so that we can make a fully informed decision on on your health and your prognosis and give them every opportunity um, but tell them if you don't don't consent we'll have to make a decision without the information um, 
and if you do all those things you um, you're unlikely to get criticized you quite often see employment contracts that have something in there saying you will if requested by the employer um, attend a, a medical examination and you'll agree to that report being disclosed to the doctor what can you do if you've got that clause in the contract and the employee refuses anyway well I suppose in theory you could take disciplinary action against the um, the employee for, for not following the term of their contract um, having said that I would be sort of cautious about doing that because I think a tribunal will have some sympathy to an employee not wanting to um, go to a doctor because that necessarily is going to involve revealing some sensitive information um, so I think it's it's something you can use um, to remind the employee to encourage the employee to go and get the medical report but ultimately I would be cautious about taking some sort of formal action against the employee if they don't comply unless for example the employees in a in a safety critical role where you've got a, a, you know, a good reason for needing them to go and um, get a medical examination next thing I wanted to look at was stopping enhanced sick pay um, my experience is it can be a very good way of sorting out the genuinely sick from um, employees who are malingering. Um, it's amazing how quickly employees get better. Um, some employees get better when their when their sick pay stops. Um, but can you actually do that? What are the what are the risks? What are the considerations if you do want to stop an, an employee's sick pay? Obviously, the starting point is to look at the employee's contract and the handbook. What does that say about their entitlement to sick pay? Um, is it contractual? Is it contractual for a couple of weeks and then discretionary? Is it entirely discretionary? If it is contractual, are there any requirements the employee's got to satisfy? Um, for example, notification requirements. Again, this is an area where I would be a little bit cautious about not paying sick pay just because an employee hasn't completely complied with the technicalities of, a notif of notification requirements, for example, in relation to sick pay. Um, but it is, it is worth looking at. Even if it's not um, stated to be contractual, do you effectively have a, um, a custom and practice of paying enhanced sick pay? And this is a situation we come up against quite a lot where the, the contract says sick pay is discretionary, but the employer says we always pay up to six months sick pay, but we don't want to do it for this person. Is, has the entitlement become contractual by custom and practice? Um, Potentially, um, the, the case law talks about a, a policy being reasonable, notorious and certain in order for it to become contractual by custom and practice. So I think you'd need to look at how often you do pay full sick pay, how often has this been an issue, how well known is it within the organisation um, and what's the reason for wanting to move away for it in, in this situation. Um, even if you come to the conclusion that sick pay is discretionary, um, you need to exercise that discretion in a, in a fair and reasonable manner um, thinking about your trust trust and confidence duty um, so even if it's not um, contractual expressly or by custom and practice um, you need to be thinking about well if we always pay up to three months pay for other employees why are we only wanting to pay this person one week do we have a good reason for wanting to pay this person um, less so some element of consistency unless you've got a good reason for, for doing otherwise and also some element of communication with the employee um, so a good policy often is um, you might pay for example for a couple of weeks and then tell the employee look we're going to pay for another week sick pay is discretionary we're going to pay for it for another week but then it's going to have to stop after that um, and then the other consideration is is if the employee is disabled 
do you need to continue paying sick pay as a reasonable adjustment, something that Catherine was talking about? Um, short answer is not, not usually no. Um, there's a Court of Appeal case which quite helpfully says um, the purpose of reasonable adjustments is effectively to help an employee come back to the workplace and continuing to pay full sick pay doesn't do that, so you don't usually have to do that. Um, the one exception to that um, is where the employee is off work because the employer has failed to take reasonable adjustments. Um, that comes out of a Court of Appeal case called Nottingham uh, County Council against Meekle. In that case, the employee had um, impaired vision. The employer refused to do anything about it in terms of reasonable adjustments and therefore she went off sick. Um, she already had a contractual entitlement to six months full pay and six months uh, half pay, but the Court of Appeal said actually because you caused the absence by not making reasonable adjustments, you have to continue paying this employee full pay. Um, but that is quite a, an exceptional situation. Uh, turning to sort of specific situations you might want to deal with, firstly short-term absences, how do you deal with that? The person that always takes Fridays off or days off after a bank holiday. Um, typically you'll be doing something like a disciplinary type procedure um, if the employee's got um, lots of um, odd days off. Um, so it's going to be a case of meeting the employee explaining that absence levels are a concern, um, exploring with the employer the reasons for these, explaining you're going to review them going forward, set some expectations as to what an acceptable level of absence is, and explain that if absence doesn't improve further, um, you're going to, you might have to take further action. You'll probably start off with an informal meeting, but at an appropriate stage, you might give the employee a formal warning. And if things don't improve, um, you'll probably need to hold further meetings with the employee um, and, and consider issuing further warnings, ultimately potentially moving to dismissal. The other things you should be looking at are um, when you meet the employees, what's the risk of a recurrence and is there actually some kind of underlying medical issue here which, which is causing these, these problems? Asking the employee, you know, is, is there anything wrong, you know, what, what's going on here? And if necessary, you might need to get medical advice, you might need to think about reasonable adjustments. Looking at long-term absence, um, that's probably something you're going to deal with um, more um, under your capability procedure. Um, again, there's going to be elements of, uh, of consultation with the employee and you're going to need to get medical advice. <coughs> It's difficult to be too sort of prescriptive about what you do with long-term absence. The number of meetings you have, the length of the process is very much going to depend on on the prognosis, what comes out of your, your fact-finding. If your first medical report says actually the employee's got no prospect of ever coming back to work and the employee confirms that, you're probably going to be able to move to dismissal fairly quickly. If the indication is that the employee is going to be off for a month but can then make a phased return to work, then you're probably going to have to wait that month till the employee's um, ready to come back for work. So as I say, the sorts of things you should be looking at are meeting the employee to discuss the reason for the absence, getting medical advice on you know, what's wrong with them, um, with a view to establishing if they have a disability. Um, it's worth saying on this that um, the doctor can be asked to give his opinion on the various elements of the disability test which Catherine talked about. Ultimately, it's not a medical question, it's a legal question as to whether someone's disabled. So you shouldn't blindly follow what the doctor says as to whether the employee is disabled or not for the purposes of the legislation. You want the medical report to give you an opinion on the employee's prognosis and on reasonable adjustments. 
and then you should be consulting the employee about the medical advice, the prognosis, reasonable adjustments, potentially um, alternative roles uh, within the organisation. Um, I guess the other thing to be thinking about with the medical advice is who do you go to to get the medical advice from? Um, in practice, employers will often start off with the employee's GP. Depending on what comes out of that, you might then want to move to a, um, a specialist doctor. Um, there are um, some doctors who are known for giving sort of more employer-friendly advice than others, um, and it can be quite helpful to go to an <coughs> occupational health company that will perhaps take a slightly more robust view of an, of an employee's condition um, than the employee's GP might. In practice, one of the issues that, that takes up a lot of the time and energy in long, dealing with long-term absences is, is reasonable adjustments. It's not enough, as I say, to just ask the employee for their own suggestions. The case law is, there's some conflicting case law in the extent to which um, an employer's actually got to consult the employee about reasonable adjustments and whether failing to consider reasonable adjustments is a breach of the duty in itself. In practice, you should show that you have considered create a paper trail and consult the employer because you're never going to be criticised for that. Catherine has talked about some of the things you might have to do as an employer, um, but it, it could include things like moving the employee into another role, another vacancy you've got, um, and you should probably, if you're going to do that, you should probably be doing that without requiring the employee to undergo a competitive interview process. Um, that comes out of a House of Lords case a few years ago called Archibald and Fife Council. Uh, that concerned an employee who worked as a road sweeper and became unable to work um, and the House of Lords said actually you should have moved this employee into an office role without requiring them to go through a competitive interview process. Um, potentially, more dramatically, it could even include creating a new role for the employee in exceptional circumstances. Um, there's a case called Southampton City Council and Randall um, a few years ago concerned an employee who works as a lecturer. Um, apparently he taught mainly mature students, but sometimes had to teach younger students as well. When he was teaching the younger students, apparently he had to shout quite a lot. Um, in, in due course, the person, the lecturer, developed some problems with his voice, which obviously made it hard for him to do his job as a lecturer. Southampton City Council did a restructuring. His role was made redundant. He brought a claim and the Employment Appeal Tribunal found that there had been a failure by the employer to make reasonable adjustments. And the EAT said, actually, what you could have done, this was a restructuring, you could have created a role for him that he would have been able to do, taking account of his medical condition, because this was a restructuring to an extent you had a blank sheet of paper. Um, so you could have devised a role for him. Um, now, I'm telling you about this case not because that's always going to be something you're going to have to do, but I think it just illustrates... Um, how widely you've got to think about these things, how much you've got to think outside the box and, and how far you potentially have to go with reasonable adjustments. It is um, quite an onerous obligation. Um, where I've seen employers get into trouble it's where they've taken a sort of tick box approach to it. And then other things, some of this Catherine's um, talked about already, equipment, other support for the employee, perhaps taking away part of the job, extra rest breaks, extra training, supervision, um, shorter hours, uh, that kind of thing. So so when can you get to the point when you can justify dismissal? Well, I suppose you're looking at, at these sorts of things. Most obvious question is how long has the employee been away and what are the prospects for them for them coming back? Um, but also, how is import, important is it to have someone doing the role? 
for someone more senior, you're probably going to be able to justify moving to this metal a little bit more quickly than for, for someone more junior, because um, it's pretty clearly going to be more damaging for the organisation to have one of the one of the directors away for a long long period. Have you satisfied your regional adjustments obligation? Have you consulted fully? Have you got up-to-date medical advice? It's worth bearing in mind that one medical report isn't necessarily going to be enough if this is going on for quite a long period of time. Um, if the employee's out for a few months, you might need to get a, a final medical report before you confirm your decision to dismiss. Looking at their length of service as well, and then a couple of other thoughts not on, on the slides. Firstly, think about PHI. Um, as Catherine said, if you dismiss someone um, who's got an entitlement to PHI, then it's, it's probably going to be pretty expensive um, because most PHI schemes say that um, to be entitled, the employee has to remain on the books as an employee, even though they're not um, doing any work. Um, and I, the other factor is, if you have actually caused as an employer the illness, you're probably going to have to go the extra mile. Um, there was a case against RBS uh, two, three years ago, a, a stress case, um, and the employee challenged the dismissal, saying, you caused it, you can't dismiss me. Um, the Employment Appeal Tribunal said, no, that's not right. You can dismiss someone, but you do definitely have to go the extra mile if you cause the dismissal yourself. Uh, one other thought on long-term absence, a, a point we get asked sometimes is about bringing in a temporary replacement. Can you do this whilst the person's off sick? Uh, yes, potentially, but you have to be careful about how you message and communicate it. It's very important to say to the employees of sick that we're doing this on a temporary basis. doesn't mean we prejudge the outcome of, of how your absence and our, how we're managing it is, is going to go, um, because otherwise potentially you risk a disability, uh, constructive dismissal claim, or you risk the employee arguing that you know, you're going through this process with me, but actually you already know where it's going to end up because you brought someone else in to do my job. You also do need to think about, can we justify it by reference to the needs of the business? It's going to be easier to justify for a more senior person. Um, and I suppose the other thing to think about is potentially it might mean you have to wait a little bit longer before you get to the point where you can dismiss the employee because actually if you are managing to deal with the business um, fine with this replacement person and if you're not paying the employee sick pay um, that might lead the, to the conclusion that actually you should give the employee a little bit longer um, to get better than if you've got this sort of gaping hole in the business that you need to fill as soon as possible. Two more situations I just wanted to touch on briefly before we um, go to the coffee break. Unauthorised absence, fairly straightforward, I'm sure you're all familiar with it. You will deal with this as a disciplinary situation, but again, you do just need to consider if there is an underlying issue causing the um, absence. You know, is it a med medical problem? <laughs> is it depression that's effectively causing the employee to bury their head in the sand, which is why they're not picking up the phone to say that they're, they're absent? Um, is the employee being bullied by their manager and doesn't want to speak to them, that kind of thing? And obviously any sanction needs to be proportionate, taking account of how long the employee is away, what their previous record has been and, and what their explanation is for why they didn't contact you. And then lastly, the sort of perennial favourite, the employee who uh, goes off sick when you tell them you're going to start a disciplinary process with them, um, or less commonly, but still happens when you start a redundancy process. Um, I guess legally you're thinking about, you need to be thinking about primarily about fairness from fair dismissal purposes, um, so you can show you've acted reasonably in all the circumstances if, if you get to a position where you're dismissing the employee or potentially if they uh, resign and claim constructive dismissal. Also thinking about the trust and confidence duty acting in a way which is consistent with that and potentially 
I guess, disability discrimination, they are less likely to be applicable for the situation where someone just goes off sick during a disciplinary hearing. Um, and it's going to be a balancing exercise. You might need to delay the process to some degree. You need to look at how long the employee's been signed off for and whether other employees are affected by the delay. So if this is just a one-off um, situation involving just this employee, a disciplinary situation, it's perhaps going to be easier to um, put the process on hold than if you've got a, a wider redundancy situation where this employee is part of a pool and this employee being out of the workplace is affecting other employees. Um, and it's also worth saying you, there, there is some case law which suggests <coughs> it may be a reasonable adjustment to change your procedure <coughs> um, and probably a matter of good practice for unfair dismissal purposes anyway. So stuff I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with thinking about consulting the employee near their home, allowing them to make written submissions, allowing them to be accompanied by a friend rather than just a colleague. Um, and eventually you, you can get to a point where you can make a decision without the employee's input, but you should give them plenty of opportunities to participate in the disciplinary redundancy process as it may be first and being flexible about that, how that happens. Um, and you should warn them before you before you do get to that point say look if you don't um, find a way of participating we will unfortunately have to make a decision without your input give them a final opportunity to be consulted we're going to break for coffee in a second but before we do I'll just introduce um, the case study to give you something to think about um, and then after the coffee break we'll we'll look at the questions uh, so the case study concerns a company called Wimbledon Media which is a digital media agency. Um, we're told that Andy is employed by Wimbledon Media as a creative director um, for their Adidas account. He spends lots of time sitting around in beanbags or hunched over his iPad. Um, about a year ago, started complaining he had about back and neck pain and three months ago went off sick. He's provided uh, regular statements of fitness to work from his GP, um, saying that he's unable to work because of his back pain. Um, he's entitled to four months sick pay um, but Roger, the HR manager, is becoming concerned about this, particularly because Adidas is a key client for the company, and the company doesn't want to be without its creative director for too long. So Roger's under pressure to sort this out, um, uh, one way or another, and the company's concerned it might lose the Adidas account. So the sort of first question we're asked is, <coughs> what should Roger do next in managing Andy's absence? We're then told that we've got a report from the GP which isn't very helpful and has got lots of vague statements in quite a common scenario. They're saying he's got back problems. Um, he should be able to come back to work in about a month, um, but he shouldn't sit on beanbags quotes for long periods of time or use his iPad for, um, excessively. And the doctor talks about an excessive return to work. So again, you know, what should we do in response to that? <coughs> We're then told that there's a meeting between Andy and Roger which they talk about his return to work. Um, Andy's saying he shouldn't use the iPad for more than two hours at a time. and should take 10 minute breaks every one to two hours. And he's suggesting that Wimbledon Limited should employ someone to help him out. Roger, for his part, is concerned that the agency can't afford to employ someone else and wonders whether this is necessary. So you're asked to think about, do you have to do this? And is there any impact on your answer that if Wimbledon Limited's got some financial difficulties? And then lastly, another employee, Rafa, um, apparently employed as a sales manager and likes to party, and he's been taking off a lot of lot of Fridays, 10 separate Fridays since January. <coughs> and the word is amongst the employees that he likes to go out in the town 
um, and drink a lot, and it's become a bit of a joke within the team. So we're asked, does it matter the evidence about him drinking is just anecdotal, and, and what should we do about the whole situation? And then we're told that there's a meeting with Rafa, who says that actually this is happening because he's very stressed about work, and, and what should we do about that? 